Hi, I'm Keith Giles, author of the Jesus Un series, and you are listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. My guest today is an author, community organizer, and peacemaker. He is also a former pastor. He's written a really important book entitled The Face of Addiction, Stories of Loss and Recovery that I really love and I hope you will read for yourself. Welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, my friend Joshua Lawson. It's great to be here. I'm so glad to finally be doing this. You were actually one of the very first people that I wanted when I was making a list when we started this thing uh, two and a half years ago of who I wanted to talk to on this podcast. I had been to the event that you and Keith Giles held in Portsmouth, Ohio on nonviolence and Jesus and was so impressed by that and you and your character and just the way you talk and you're such a good communicator. So you're one of the first people that I wanted to speak to when we started this thing, but it's just taken me this long to actually ask you on the podcast. So I apologize, but I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Well, hey, kudos to you for two years. I don't know if most podcasts last that long. (laughs) Well, you know, I quit doing it for a while, but I'm back. So that's what matters, right? Well, I'm happy you're back. Let's start with your spiritual backstory. Were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? I was, yeah. I come from a family, um, both sides, uh, blue collar, but both sides also raised to various degrees, you know, within the the Christian church, uh, mostly Protestant, evangelical, you know, Southern conservative. That's, that's my, that's my background. That's the flavor of the culture in which we were raised. I'm in Southern Ohio, right on the Ohio Kentucky border. Um, so, if you go two hours north, the culture just transforms quite a bit. But where we're at, my county, uh, 150 to 200 churches in my county alone, and they're almost all Southern evangelical conservative. Wow. Were there events, experiences, authors that you read, thinkers that you heard speak that changed your faith over the course of your journey from what you were raised with? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, early on, I got into um, people like A.W. Tozer, Leonard Ravenhill. Those were some of my early influences. David Wilkerson, I ended up going to a Bible college that uh, was founded under the umbrella of his ministry, World Challenge and Times Square Church. Um, and it was that, that experience, probably more than any other early on at that Bible college, uh, which was up in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, about 15 miles outside of um, Harrisburg. Uh, where I encountered a few other authors that kind of set me on a different path. Uh, T. Austin Sparks mm-hmm. was one of the big ones in the beginning. Uh, Gene Edwards, he was, uh, you know, very influential early on in the, the American house church movement. You know, ling- his, he has a lingering influence in, in many circles still yet. Um, but those were some of the big ones early on. Watchman Nee, Witness Lee, some of the, uh, the local church movement. Uh, that, that took place in, in mainland in China and kind of migrated over here back in the 60s. And of course, all those streams were connected in their own ways historically. Uh, but when I got in touch with some of those um, authors, men, ministers, they were mostly men. That kind of set me on a different path as far as uh, church life goes. And it led me into uh, probably what amounted to about a decade's worth of experience in what many people would call house church or house church movement or organic church. And I, I guess that brings me back full circle to where you started there. I think that's originally how I came into contact with our mutual friend, Keith, because uh, he was he ran in those circles as well. I'm not sure how much still these days, but um, that's how we connected originally um, and ended up in Portsmouth. Keith ended up in Portsmouth and ended up you being here as well. And uh, I really enjoyed that. 
that conference we did. It was great to meet you as well. I appreciate your kind words. But um, yeah, I don't know how much of a uh, detail you want there, but that's kind of my backstory as far as all that goes. When my experience of you, when, when I met you in Portsmouth, um, talking about really controversial things like nonviolence and turning the other cheek and um, loving your enemies, not just your neighbors, but your enemies, um, that does not fit into my experience of conservative evangelical that you were raised in. So was your conservative evangelicalism just different than mine? Or was there a shift from you away from your upbringing and the Bible college and all of that? It probably wasn't that different. When I look back, think back on all of the churches that I attended, I don't remember much of an emphasis on enemy love. You know, maybe it was sprinkled in there when it had to be, you know, with, with a sermon or a scripture reference, but there was never much spotlight on this as like the central message of Christ, um, the, the thing that can save the world, right? So I don't recall much of that. No, it, it was later on uh, through the influence of some other, you know, figures, you know, historically and, and present that I, I came to um, really see that if there is anything distinctive uh, about the Christian faith, that it's got to be this emphasis on enemy love. So can you, can you tell us who some of those historical and current figures were that kind of influenced you in a different direction or a new understanding? So when it came to enemy love, even that was later on when I made the original shift from a more like institutional uh, conservative evangelical church life to the organic house church uh, movement. Even in those circles, there was not much emphasis on enemy love. There were in some parts, but, but, but not a lot. Um, so even that came later on, I began to, you know, encounter the works of people like Walter Wink, you know, um, that liberationist the theology, even, even sometimes you would find it sprinkled in some of the mystical traditions of the Christian faith. Of course, some, some names that you're familiar with that you've probably talked to Brad Jerzak, Brian Zahn, these are some of the names that are current, you know, in, in, in uh, relatively evangelical circles, some of them, or at least with a history. Uh, but I find that most of the people I've encountered who, who came to imbibe this as the central component of the Christian faith ultimately didn't find really much of a home anymore in evangelical circles. At least that's been my experience. Would you consider yourself homeless at this point? Or are you kind of out in the desert? Or how do you describe where you are right now spiritually? <laughs> now, that is a fantastic question. Homeless in a sense, yes, because I still... I still to this day, and I've always struggled with feeling that there was no particular group to which I belonged. And that's, that's now as much, if not more than ever. So, so really in my own life, the past couple of years, there's been a real experience of coming home to myself. <laughs> if that makes, if that makes much, uh, much sense. Um, but as far as no institutionally or, or, or group, uh, affiliation, uh, yes, still very much homeless and without a, without a uh, sense of belonging, unfortunately, I guess. Well, in the couple of years that I've been working on this podcast and, and really even longer than that, I've come across so many people who say those exact same things. And so there, there are so many of us out there in that desert that we can't be homeless because we belong with each other. But yeah, I think what you just said is key. Finding a home with yourself is so important. And uh, the, the deeper... I get into the love of God, the more I love and accept myself. And I don't think I could do that 
in the evangelical setting in which I was raised? No, no, not at all. I mean, that was, that was, you know, the, the central focus of a lot of the churches I came up in was an absolute rejection of yourself, right? And this is what Jesus meant by deny yourself. I, I don't think that was what he really meant the way I came to imbibe that and, and take away from that. But that's also often how it came across, you know, is, was there are parts of you, if not all of you. I mean, some of the real intense guys will say all of you, you know, you're just your sin as you are. Total deprived. Yeah, at the very least, there are many parts of you that have no place, right? You might struggle with them in your human experience, but you can't befriend them. You can't accept them. You can't spend time with them. They just need to be outcast and exiled, you know, and that, that became a real problem for me as it has for many people. In I guess I'm thinking service. about your work today and the theme of your book. And you seem to have found the eyes to look upon humanity in whatever condition it may be with eyes of dignity and respect and love and even admiration, no matter what the current status of that person might be. And I find that to be really, really unusual in modern American Christianity, especially uh, in my old circle. So. Um, what, was that a process for you? Is that something that you've always felt? Have you always, you know, looked for the diamond in the rough or is that something that's pretty new to you later in life? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess I have some, some personality, you know, tendencies and dispositions maybe, you know, that, that lend itself to that. But I, you know, I, I've, I've long been a very exclusively minded person, you know, Look and, and, and approaching it from the sense of an idealist, you know, looking for the perfect vision, the, the perfect kind of community, the perfect state, you know, of, of being in myself. And I think a lot of it goes back to that. You know, when we when we fail to accept ourselves, we're really going to struggle to to offer any acceptance or love or belonging to other people because we often project, you know, out into the world the things we despise and, and about ourselves. And we find it everywhere. And I think that's behind a lot of Jesus' state, or Paul, what Paul said, judge not uh, lest you be judged, you know? And it's, it's like we see these things within ourselves that we've been taught or conditioned to believe are just unacceptable. And so we project them out there into the world, and then we find an enemy other, you know, that we can condemn the parts of ourselves we're so concerned about and worried about. So it's been, a, it's been a process, and it's been a practice for me. Um, it's been necessary for my own well-being. I think Carl Jung said that the best way to deal with the darkness that's out there in the world is to deal with your own darkness. And when you've, when you've really befriended and come home to yourself and accepted yourself, you, you see that you're really no different. We all share a common humanity that is that the shades of both light and dark, right? Right. God is the only one good, I guess Jesus said. Uh, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now for us, <laughs> it's light and dark, you know, and that's, that's a part of our experience. So accepting that about ourselves, I think, helps us then to accept that about other people and begin to be able to practice better uh, a lifestyle of not othering and excluding others. I love that. Um, in my own experience, when I started to have similar feelings, um, being a pastor put all of that to the test uh, because you are intimately uh, working alongside other people. And, you know, I'm, I was I'm experiencing this shift away from total depravity towards original goodness. And then I saw some really dark stuff happening. And that could have been, you know, in, in other churches, with other clergy members, with uh, people in our own midst. Uh, but pastoring uh, will test you. So I'm interested to hear what was your experience as a pastor? Did you find that to be good or uh, was it hard? Yeah, well, I mean, it was, 
it was good in some respects. It was hard in, in other respects. It was a learning experience overall. It was nothing that I ever planned for. For many years, I was like the anti-institutional church guy among those who knew me. Um, and that, that was, you know, coming out of my house church, organic church days, you know, I can't tell you how many things I've, words I've written, things I've spoken in the past that, you know, were very clear that, uh, you know, the modern church institution, including the pastoral office is against God's will and design. You know, it actually stands in the way of people experiencing the kind of community that we, we think is envisioned in scripture. So it was nothing I ever planned on doing. It just came up as an opportunity for me to serve in my community. And so I took it and I was at a place at the time where I was open enough to take it, whereas I was not for, for many, many years. And what I tried to do at the time was to basically help salvage a, a failing congregation that had been uh, without leadership for over a decade and had declining finances and membership and was really on the edge of closing down. And they said, if you can come on part time and try to help us here, I said, OK, I'll do that. And I tried to align the church's mission with some of the other recovery-related work that I was doing in the community. And uh, in the end, it turned out to be too little too late. We weren't able to do that. Um, but it was fun, and I made some valuable connections and learned lots of things along the way. So did your experience as a pastor confirm or push back against the mindset that the institution itself is a problem? Um, it confirmed it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and of course, we see what we already want to see or are expecting to see. But at the time, I did go into it with wide open enough, enough of an openness that I was, you know, I, I was open to the possibility that this could be good. Uh, and I had I had loosened up enough to let go of some of my rigid um, expectations and idealizations at the time. But overall, yes. And that's just one instance, because the church I came into was it was an old fledgling mainline denominational church, very old school, about as not quite as high, you know, church liturgical as you could get in, in Protestant fold, but maybe a step down from, say, Episcopalian. Um, it was an old Lutheran evangelical church where they actually spoke German in the service up to the 1950s and 60s. So there was a whole liturgy, you know, like a, a written bulletin and an actual liturgy with a, a little sandwich mini sermonette right in the middle, which at the time I loved, you know, because I was used to the sermon as the focal point of the service, right? This was totally different. Uh, but I had never led a service like that. Um, only had only attended a few of them. And, and the first time I showed up, uh, when they asked me to come and, and fill the pulpit, right? Because they had no pastor at the time. I did. And the, the communication, I guess, was lacking. So when I showed up and I was sitting in the church office with the, uh, the church council president prepping for the service, you know, 15 minutes before he was printing out the bulletin and talking in ways that I, it, it suddenly occurred to me, he's expecting me to lead the entire liturgy, not just show up and preach when it's time to preach, right? Because that's what I was used to. <laughs> and he was like, oh yeah, you'll do fine, right? So so having maybe sat in on three to four liturgical church services in my life, here I was leading one for the first time with 15 minutes notice. So that was fun. But yes, it was very structured, institutional, lots of old mindsets that in the end, the people who were left there um, you know, well-intentioned, good-hearted, uh, irregardless of that, um, just kind of weren't able to embrace, you know, a, kind of a vision for something new or different. Right. I remember, oh, several years back now, I was pastoring a church and I just really felt like we needed to sell our property. It was all paid for and sell the property. We lived out in the country. We had several acres, several buildings. It was a little campus out here in the middle of nowhere. Sell the property move into the city and really just serve the poor. And initially, people were excited about it. Even the foundational pillars of the church seemed excited about it. 
when it came time to actually do it, it was a, we can't actually do this. And so there was this, you know, the institution as we know it has to survive. And we're not willing to be that seed that falls to the ground and dies so that something new can happen. And that just reminds me of Jesus' statement about, you know, you can't put old wine in a new wine skin, but I keep trying. Well, yeah, well, hey, we've got to try. That's the only way to learn. We, we don't, that's the, really the only way we learn is through experience and then reflecting on it. We finally accept reality. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. How, how did you come to your current work um, with recovery and addiction issues? So in uh, late 2017, early 2018, I was working as a mail carrier for the U.S. Postal Service. Really good job as far as pay and benefits go. One of the last remaining good blue-collar jobs, I guess, in, <laughs> in many places. Uh, but I felt this uh, strong, strong urge to, to move out towards uh, a more fulfilling vocation, something where I could use the gifts that I had to serve other people and also just, again, have more personal fulfillment. And I received an opportunity at that time to work with an organization called Faith in Public Life. Um, Ohio, and they were working on a ballot initiative in our state for the midterm elections that year that was focused on uh, the intersection between our need for criminal justice reform in the United States and access to treatment for people who, who um, use drugs and, and or have a substance use disorder. And uh, I took the opportunity and I left my job at the post office and I got into that work. And it was enough that it gave me the space and the time that I needed to begin to interact directly with more folks who were directly affected by the opioid crisis and things related, and really spend time hearing their stories, listening, seeing their suffering, um, something that I was aware of, but from a distance. So it gave me a chance to get close to what is one of the most pressing social concerns of our time in our country. And that was how I initially began to get into this work. What surprised you most about working with people who have that substance use issue? Uh, folks that you've met along the way, whether they be folks who actually have uh, been involved with drugs themselves or the people who love them? What what has surprised you the most about that kind of work? How much insight they bring into the general human condition. Uh, so much value um, that they have by going through the things they've gone through um, that can help people like me who maybe don't struggle in that particular way with that specific thing, uh, but for whom uh, their experience relates undeniably on a whole host of other levels. Yeah, that would be the main thing that stands out to me. Has getting to know people in the trenches of the war on drugs changed your political philosophy on this issue at all? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, in society, we're, we're used to, you know, all of the loud voices come from those at the top, you know, and those at the bottom who are pushed out to the margins of society often don't have a voice or are not listened to by those who occupy power at the center. Uh, but this is where there's a lot of real good resonance and overlap with the message of Christ and the kingdom of God, because that's what he was doing, right? In many instances, he was going out to the margins. He was spending time with the people there, and he was amplifying, magnifying their voice to those who occupied power in the center. And that was what was so upsetting in, in, in many instances to those who were were in power at the time and who took issue with Jesus, the things he did, the things he said, because he was amplifying the voice of the marginalized and he was identifying with them preeminently over those who had the power. Mm. So what brought you to the point of actually sitting down and writing a book and telling these stories? Yeah, so I, I am a storyteller. I, I think that's one of the, uh, the chief uh, ways to change a culture 
is to shift the public narrative, the stories we tell about one another in society that inform how we relate to one another. And historically, you know, the poets and the prophets and the faith leaders and communities have been those who tell the stories, who set the tone for how society and people in it relate to each other by and large. So, you know, I was, I was coming to the end of that campaign, you know, with all of this new, new insight for me. It wasn't much at the time, but it was new enough. And these new connections and these new relationships I'd formed and all this, this suffering I'd, I was beginning to become more aware of. And I thought, well, how can I take my desire and the ability I have to tell stories and, and pair it with, with this pressing social concern? And that was where the idea was conceived to begin to interview some of the people I'd met along the way during that year and um, create a platform where I could tell their stories. And that's how The Face of Addiction came out of that. Well, I hope folks will read the book and uh, devour it for themselves, be touched by each of these stories. But could you tell us just about one person that you met and discuss in the book? Just anybody that comes to mind. Just tell us one story from the book. So yeah, so I'll talk about Christine. Um, Christine, early on in the project, was one of uh, was a lady who reached out to me, very eager to tell her story. She was in recovery herself after decades in active addiction. And I told her story, I think it was in chapter, I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but what I was able to tell from my interview with Christine hardly began to touch, it was the tip of the iceberg of everything she had suffered in life, and all of the trauma, and all of the abuse, and all of the hard times. Uh, but she had found her way into recovery after, after near-death uh, experiences and multiple uh, overdoses and, and relapses and whatnot. And she was so passionate about ending the stigma surrounding people who use drugs and those in recovery. And it's been a year. I don't know. It might be a year to the day. Uh, it was right around this time last year. Um, Christine was one county over from me. Um, when we first connected, I told her story. Uh, we stayed in touch. Then she ended up moving to my county. I tried to get her in touch uh, with the people in the recovery community here and their allies. Um, and then around this time last year was the last time I heard from her. She was beginning to collect uh, some food and supplies for some families in need for the holidays. And then she dropped off the radar. And about a month and a half later, uh, a friend contacted me, mutual friend, and said that they had seen Christine's obituary. And I tracked down her daughter on, on Facebook, uh, who confirmed uh, our fear that, yes, Christine had relapsed. Um, don't know what she was facing going through, but she relapsed and apparently felt too ashamed to reach out for help. And to it really devastated me. Like, it really did. I can take you back to the moment I received the news standing in my laundry room <laughs> at home. And to think that here was, here was a a person who was so passionate, who was so full of life, who, who had experienced such redemption and recovery in her own life. But yet after all of that, slipped up, failed, made a mistake, whatever she was going through, doesn't matter. Um, and yet the stigma yet was still so strong surrounding her that it had that hold to keep her from reaching out to those who, who she knew, she had to have known, I thought at least, wouldn't, wouldn't judge or condemn her for that. Uh, but she wasn't able to pull herself out of that. And uh, now she's gone. A year ago, um, she was helping collect photos for a project on overdose awareness of people who had been lost. And this year, in that same round of collecting photos and stories, she was one of them. And unfortunately, um, Christine's case is very common. Over 100,000 people in the last 12 months have died now to an accidental overdose. Unprecedented record numbers, according to the CDC. So I always have to give a shout out to Christine. My second book, Following the Face of Addiction, is going to be dedicated to her. So many. Um people who have lived out that same reality over so many years. 
How do we help people in that situation? Feel like they can ask for help when they need it. Um, I, I know that living with addiction is extremely isolating and sometimes the only ones going through that. How do we, obviously, you know, we're not here to be a messiah or a savior to anybody, but what can we do to make things better for people like Christine? Yeah, so just friendship, you know, accompanying them on the journey. It's a whole different conversation when we're talking about loved ones or someone close who is in an active addiction and the, the kind of boundaries that a person in that position has to put up to protect themselves and their family. That's all legit and valuable. But when it comes to just, you know, our friends, our acquaintances, people in our communities, um, the advocacy we do that we do in public, um, social policies, all of these things, enabling has no place in those conversations. Um, we have to come alongside of people. We have to suffer with them. We have to listen to them. We have to spend time with them. And ultimately, we have to empower them. I can tell a person who's been kicked around their whole life that God loves you and you're worthy of respect and dignity until, you know, until the cows come home, as they say. But ultimately, to break and overcome the stigma that people who use drugs face, they need to be, they need to have a sense of self-worth and self-accomplishment. And so we have to give them the opportunities and we have to empower them with the tools that they need to accomplish their own goals so that they feel good about themselves. Because ultimately, we can make it all sound as beautiful as we want, whether we come from the perspective of the gospel or just a humanitarian angle, whatever it is, and tell people they're lovely and worthy and all this stuff. But eventually, we have to, we have to include them truly. They have to, they have to come home to themselves and feel that sense of belonging in their own communities that, that, that gives them a sense of empowerment that this is, that this is their community too. And they can, they can, they can make choices and they can make changes for themselves that will better them and that will better their communities too. That they belong here just as much as any of us do. We're just going to find ways to do that. Josh, if you were in charge of drug policy in the United States, what changes would you make? Oh, man. <laughs> well, I mean, we've got to end the war on drugs. I mean, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. How, how much of a failure it's been proven to be now historically and still propped up by stigma by ignorance, by bad social policy, by people in power who are making money off of this. Uh, but it does more, far more harm than good to people who use drugs and or are in seeking recovery. So we have to move towards decriminalization, but not that alone. There has to be a wide-scale sweeping movement of education in our communities, community-based education, uh, genuine genuine prevention programs. And that, I'm not talking about the D.A.R.E. program and just say no and going in and telling our kids how bad it is to use drugs. I'm talking about the kind of drug prevention that is focused on issues of social inequality, housing, poverty, trauma, homelessness, all the things that often contribute to a substance use disorder and lead people down the path where eventually so many people in society just blame them for their choices you know, and look upon them as some type of monsters, moral degenerates. Uh, there was a long road that brought them there. And addressing those issues uh, that have that have informed that road uh, is what we have to do to prevent uh, substance, you know, misuse, uh, what we often call drug addiction. I think it was Martin Luther King who said something to that effect. He said, "You know, we've all got to we're all called to play the Samaritan on on the on the roadside of life and pull people out of the ditch when we come upon them. But eventually, if we really care, if we really love the, the, them, if we really are concerned with justice, we have to ask why." The road is in such a shape that so many people are coming along and being beat down by robbers. We're going to ask, you know, this whole structure that's producing the beggars needs to be reformed. It needs to be revamped. It needs to be torn down and rebuilt again. And ultimately, I think that's the message of Christ. You know, we're not just talking about 
you know, personal acts of charity and goodwill. Love looks at the systems that oppress people, the systems that keep people down, the systems that lead people into addiction and all sorts of other uh, personal ills. And we have to address those things and speak to the, the powers that be, uh, such as those who head up the drug war and continue to propagate it in our country, that this too is what it means to make peace. You know, if we're going to be peacemakers, I've yet to hear many Christians apply this to the global war on drugs and ending it as a call of, uh, as a call, part of the call of Christ to make peace. About 50% of our audience, Josh, are evangelicals or recently departed evangelicals. And they might hear you say, we need to end the war on drugs. And that might sound so radical that, you know, they just cannot imagine what you mean by that. Could you break that down a little? How has the war on drugs hurt people? Well, I mean, if we go back to its origins in modern times, you know, the late 70s and early 80s, we can even listen to advisors, you know, uh, to President Nixon admitting, you know, in an interview that we knew what we were doing when we, when we, when we threw out this label and we started the war on drugs officially. You know, we were targeting the black communities. We were targeting the anti-war leftists. We knew we couldn't make it criminal to be against the war necessarily or, or to use marijuana or whatever other substance. But we knew if we made these things, uh, we couldn't target those people in particular, but if we, we targeted their, their drug use and we criminalized it, then we could go in and disrupt their communities and take power and all that stuff. So we see that, you know, when, Re- when Reagan really started to fund it, um, you know, President Clinton was probably the worst of all um, to, to put in place policies and measures um, that led to mass incarceration, which is, we, we, you know, there are many sources and voices out there showing how that's disproportionately affected black you know, communities and individuals. Uh, there are so many ways, there are so many nuances, surprising nuances to how the drug war negatively affects people, how it keeps them in a cycle you know, of crime and poverty and, and, and all of the related issues um, that you don't see from afar. You don't see from the suburbs, <laughs> unfortunately. That's why it's so important to have voices and allies out there who will magnify and center the voices of the marginalized, because you begin to hear a different story, a different take on these things. Um, and, you know, I, I get it that it sounds radical. It would have sounded radical to my ears at one point, too. Um, but that's why I'm writing a follow-up book to The Face of Addiction, which is with the editor now called Drugs and Jesus. It's going to provide a lot of the theological framework to particularly evangelicals who may feel that they need that to enter into the work of harm reduction, which also includes a really good, solid look at the negative effects of the drug war and what it means when we say we've got to end this thing. We really want to love and help the people who are suffering in our communities. I love that you're writing about that. Um, when can we expect that next book? Well, I'm hoping sometime in 2022, hopefully closer to the first half than the second. But like I said, it's with the editor right now. The manuscript is complete. So as soon as I get it back from her, I'll give it a final revision and send it off to the publisher. And then it will be up to their schedule. But hopefully sometime in the first half of 2022. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited about that. Um, how can folks get in touch with you? They've listened, they've heard your story and heard what you had to share today. And and maybe they know somebody who deals with substance use and, and they just they just want to have, you know, a friend like you who knows what they're doing, maybe help them think differently about some things. Is there a way that folks can follow you online to connect with you? Yeah, social media is the best way. I'm active on Facebook. I'm active on Instagram. I'm even active on TikTok, though I don't speak as much about these issues there. Um, you know, email as well, my website, uh, lawsonwrites.com. I have some people who like to support my creative work on Patreon. You can, you can look me up there as well. So all those avenues, but, um, Facebook is probably where I'm still the most active on social media right now. If that is an indicator of my age, 
So be it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, friends, I hope you will get a copy of the book, The Face of Addiction, Stories of Loss and Recovery. It's available now. You need to read that so that you can fully comprehend the follow-up that we'll be releasing shortly. Josh Lawson, man, I just, I love your heart. I love, oh, I love how you are so transparent and your, your communication gift is so strong that you communicate things in such a way that it helps uh, hard-hearted old people like me think differently <laughs> about something. And I'm so grateful for you. I appreciate that, Jason. I feel all the same about you, brother. Thanks so much for joining me. I look forward to having you back on when the second book comes out. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. If you found it meaningful, please rate and review the show on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. Join the conversation by following the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or joining our listener-exclusive Messy Conversations group on Facebook. Finally, check out Jason's weekly Pathios column at MessySpirituality.org. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with another new episode.